Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Andrew Frawley. Andrew is a mini-talented force in American politics. Starting from a background in marketing, he became the first person hired onto the Yang 2020 presidential campaign, where he created the math hat and helped to grow the movement into the force it is today. He currently is the executive director of the Good Life Movement, an organization dedicated to advancing mental health policy through bipartisan civic engagement, raising awareness, and taking direct action. Today, we'll dive into topics including the power dynamics present in American politics, how shifting views on mental health can lead to improved policy, and better metrics we can use to evaluate national success. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Andrew Frawley. Today, I'm here with Andrew Frawley. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm great. Gavin, happy to be here. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so, you know, the sort of main thing that we're here to talk about today is uh, mental health and some of the initiatives uh, that you've been pushing forward. Uh, but I'd love to start just by uh, talking about uh, another thing that we have a little bit of a common interest in, which is uh, I know you were part, uh, very, very early part of the Andrew Yang campaign, uh, the presidential campaign. Um, so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that and maybe, uh, you know, a story or two about the early days here. I love that question. Yeah, it gives me, <laughs> gives me a big roadmap to talk about all sorts of cool things I've done. Um, Good. No, I mean, my... Um, my professional career has always been driven by an interest in uh, well-being, mental health, um, and this did ultimately intersect me with Andrew Yang. My career began, I was trying to work in neurotechnology in San Francisco, mm -hmm. aspirationally, nobody would hire me, but um, I, I thought that was one of our big paths. And, you know, in our pre-recording, you know, we were talking about Neuralink. Um, yep. I was actually thinking about that stuff in like 2015 in undergrad um, as nice. a potential path to take on some some chronic disorders, um, you know, not necessarily uploading us to the cloud. But um, when I was in San Francisco, not working in neurotechnology after nobody hired me, I started to think a lot about, um, you know, just mental health broadly and, you know, how to really impact it since I couldn't work in that field. And it got me thinking about the systems of mental health. And with automation coming down the pike, I realized um, before it would take over the world, it would uh, take all the jobs and that'd be really bad for meaning mm -hmm. and purpose, which are so linked with mental health. And so I got really um, up on the mental health kick. And very randomly, I, you know, I turned into this like walking neophyte of like the mental health automation word. <laughs> and I was in New York City in 2017. I had a meeting with Gary Vaynerchuk, I had networked my way into, I invited a friend to come join me because I knew my friend would love to meet Gary as well. And he said, Oh, I have a meeting with Andrew Yang at the same time. Um, and so he actually pushed the Andrew Yang meeting back because you know, who is this guy? And we went to the Gary V and then went to the Andrew Yang meeting. And I had my textbooks about automation and mental health. And, you know, he mentioned he was running for president. So nice. we hit it off and I ended up joining him about six months later out of his mother's apartment. Um, <laughs> I moved cities. I was a second employee founding team member. Um, and worked generally as his director of marketing for his presidential campaign. And, you know, that was a whole roller coaster I could certainly get into. But, um, you know, on his campaign, I built the marketing team from scratch, raised tens of millions of dollars, created math hats. Um, 
I still got my math hats. Yeah, uh, yeah. My, my mom <laughs> loves wearing hers around. Yep. It, it really is stunning who, you know, we, we sold hundreds of thousands of those hats. I mean, it is a humbling accomplishment to create something that sort of had that sort of um, energy. It, it is stunning, even in my mental health work, who I come across uh, that is an owner of a math hat. You, you know, there are people within government that you would not expect to meet. And they're like, I have one of your hats. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an exciting, you know, little moment. Absolutely. And just for those who might have a little bit less familiarity, um, mm-hmm. you know, so this Andrew Yang campaign, it was, you know, a 2020 campaign, you know, very much um, along the lines of kind of bringing, I think, a little bit more like rationality and just sort of um, thoughtfulness to politics. Um, I don't know if you want to, you know, give any other short descriptions for people who might not be aware, but I know I got inspired by, there was sort of a basic income aspect of it, uh, that seemed to get people very excited. Um, yeah. Is there any other things that you, you would say to describe the Yang campaign? Um, you know, our, our, our campaign was obviously very different. Um, the math hat was definitely a symbol of, um, a focus on solutions, uh, helping people, uh, and, and, you know, anti- quickly as, as producer Nick is pointing out, uh, the math hat stands for make America think harder, <laughs> which I always like, you know, the, the, the controversy behind that is when it was created, it wasn't an acronym. Um, right. I love the dry satire of it, that it just, it wasn't an acronym. It's just mathematics. Um, <laughs> but Yang, uh, got, got really into making an acronym. Um, but it really was just a symbol of like the anti, uh, political circus. It's just mm-hmm. actually, we're, we're very focused on the people and otherwise the campaign was, a uh, intentionally a sort of positive people's movement uplifting. Um, and I, I am ultimately trying to channel a lot of that similar energy in the new organization I'm building good life movement. Um, that is really one of the central things we're missing from society right now is just a, generally positive vision of the future yes um, specifically oriented around people uh there's a lot of visions out there you see around climate they have a clear vision for you know green tech but one thing i always say is like where's just the movement about people and like improving Mm -hmm. our (laughs) well-being like we have all these sub movements but not a people movement and uh that is ultimately what we're trying to be I'm curious what, like, if there's things that surprised you, you know, kind of being on the ground there in a political campaign or things that you, you know, learned there that, that maybe you're, you're, you'd like to spread the word about. Um, yeah, it, it really was a wild experience. And I, I tell people about this all the time that I actually grew up extremely uh, disenchanted with politics. Mm-hmm. I'm, like truly I was the last person you would ever expect to have worked on Yang's campaign. Um, and so what's interesting is I was basically just a normal guy, just hanging out in the political system. Mm -hmm. And so Andrew Yang's, you know, meteoric rise that made no sense made it such that a lot of our political team were just like normal people that happened Hmm. to find themselves inside of rooms where normal people don't often just stumble into, you know, you only, interesting. you know, yeah. I, I was in the room when Yang and Biden were chopping it up. Um, hmm. And usually to be in that room in any capacity, you spent 10 years, you know, 
doing whatever it takes to get in that room. And my biggest takeaway, which is actually pretty shocking, <laughs> is one, I actually in general find many people in government way more well-intentioned than uh, <laughs> like the general public thinks. Interesting, but my, yeah. my biggest takeaway was really that um, like the people have almost all the power. Uh, I couldn't believe who would pull Yang aside or mention to him that they wish they could talk about the problems the way he did, but they can't because they are beholden to certain demographics within the public or certain constituencies. They have to be mindful of what they say. And mm -hmm. it made me, it, it genuinely influenced my creation of the good life movement because I realized that even though nobody really believes it too much in the public, like doing the simple things like making a phone call and specifically the voters within, you know, the district or the voters within a certain election cycle to a congressperson or a legislator, even state legislator, they literally create the entire agenda. Um, like politicians mm -hmm. are totally reactive to their voters because they're just trying to stay in office. And so when you exercise power and you say, hey, I get pissed off when you said that thing and I'm going to vote against you because of it or, you know, something of that sort, like the politicians actually react a lot. And, you know, you wouldn't expect that, but it's part of the reason why they so frequently speak in platitudes uh, because they just have so many people they can't piss off. <laughs> Um, totally. there, there's way more nuance to it, but that's, that, that was actually my most shocking takeaway is that you know, the people, people, people matter and have influence. Yeah, we had, um, we had a state Senator on uh, Faircloth, uh, one of our earlier episodes, and he was telling us, um, you know, kind of a, a, a similar thing about like, you know, there's only certain people who show up <laughs> or who make the calls. And he's like, I've gotten so many calls from, from fundamentalists, you know, but you, you just never get the calls from the reasonable people and trying to call the you know reasonable people to stand up and, uh, you know, just show up in these offices. Cause it's really hard, you know, either show up in the offices, you know, or make the phone calls or what have you. Right. Cause when it's only one it's, side yelling in your ear. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's very true. And you know, the way I describe it is like, these people like their job, like congressmen mm -hmm. or whoever, like they like their job. Um, they don't have a clear path to another job. And so they also feel like they're the best for the job. And so they want to keep it. And when you, and, and you know, as much as we all talk about the influences of, um, you know, money or whatever, like those things certainly play in, we are actually a democracy, like who votes and who we vote for actually determines who's there. And especially for Congress, every two years, people have to like fight for the demographics who are going to vote for their, like vote them in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like you said, it's like, if you can build a lot of power within the um, one, create your own group that will actually swing its own votes or make your cause um, popular within the people who are, um, you know, chronically swinging, you know, each election cycle, this, you know, the, the quote unquote, swing voters, if you can build power in either of those, you can get a lot of promises. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say you can suddenly get everything done, but you can get a lot of promises. And, you know, there's a trickle down on to how I, um, that does ultimately lead to legislation, but that, you know, I don't want to you know, do a whole dissertation here, but I, I could speak to that. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I do think that, um, you know, I love to keep asking some questions on the, the campaign and I think that we'll hit that, but, um, you know, you're, you're just speaking here about, you know, how do you, um, create movements that give those attention, the attention of, um, you know, our politicians. And so I'm curious a little bit, maybe you can tell us what you're thinking about as far as the good life project. I know that this is a initiative that you're doing to try to get better kind of policy and, just sort of governmental attitudes around mental health, but how are you thinking about kind of building that, um, that sort of force of influence there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the big picture of like what we're ultimately doing, mm-hmm. um, is that we're hundred percent committed just to advocacy, which is, you know, political awareness mm-hmm. uh, or one lane of advocacy, specifically political awareness and organizing the public for mental health. And what that ultimately means is we're just trying to get a massive, group of the public at large involved in the politics of mental health. Um, you know, the, the why here is that I was looking around during COVID trying to understand why, why this resoundingly uh, popular cause had not translated into any sort of cult, like culture of accountability and not the political reform you would expect. Yep. And I can unpack how I think we can get the public. Um, but really what we're ultimately just trying to do is get a giant swell of people to get together um, register as voters, create a formal mental health voting block. Again, you could swing, once you have a block, you can swing people um, and then get that group to make phone calls, write letters, uh, do demonstrations, and then come to the table with a scorecard that we're actually working with many people in the mental health field on creating. Um, Interesting. So you can come to the table and say, here's the plan. We all agree on it. Um, You know, we have the voters, we're calling, you're like calling them to say, hey, this is the plan and we have 3% of the vote. And again, you exercise that in the specific election cycles where seats do actually swing and you can get those people somewhat beholden to you. So that is like um, our big picture goal. And, and you know, mental health is extremely popular. Uh, you know, 92 percent of Democrats, 92 percent of independents, 94 percent of Republicans are for it. So I actually think it's reasonably possible. The biggest risk for most organizations in this sort of situation is that they um like it, if your cause becomes extremely politicized, your power is lessened. Mm. Like you can have a voting block that, you know, says we're going to vote against you against, you know, gun reform or whatever. And like a Republican will just never really care mm-hmm. um, because they don't make it out of their primary if they're, um, you know, right. anti or, or, you know, whatever, anti second amendment or, you know, reform. So uh, that's a lot of, thinking and you know again i could unpack how i plan to get the public but Mm -hmm. that's our our larger vision yeah that makes sense uh also amusing side note here of you know it's going to take a little bit of time but the other yang spinoff the forward party is definitely trying to address some of those primary dynamics that you're talking about oh yeah yeah um you know i feel for him uh he is someone you know his, his brand has been damaged in recent years. Just, uh, you know, running for mayor was, uh, a, a little rocky for him and creating a third party and taking on like the general structure of election cycles is, uh, going to create some, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to find the right word, like some, uh, tension, <laughs> mm-hmm. but he, he is totally right on the diagnosis of the problems. And again, I, I feel for him because it's like, 
to really pursue it, like you have to really go all in. You're totally willing to give up being a, you know, the happy go lucky, likable person. Like for me, mental mm-hmm. health, it's like, you know, everyone loves mental health. So I don't feel, <laughs> yeah, it's true. you know, that scared going into a room and telling people, Oh, I'm doing the mental health thing. People are like, yeah. You know, <laughs> how dare you try to make people saner? <laughs> yeah. when, when people come in and say, you know, I'm build, trying to build a third party, yeah, you know, multi-party system, you know, it's tough. So, but he, he's right on the diagnosis of the problems. I mean, it's the ranked choice voting at a minimum would mm-hmm. probably be one of the best things we could do for democracy. Um, it would depolarize a lot of the election cycles. Um, it's nothing but power to the people. Um, right. And you can tell by who opposes it, right? When you look at ranked choice voting in the open primaries, basically the only people opposing it are party insiders, right? Yeah, it's it's usually the people in power just because it um, disrupts a little bit of the status quo. But again, it's it's, it's an even more democratic process. You know, if, Mm -hmm. if we are to define democracy as like, almost like freedom of choice, mm-hmm. ranked choice voting allows you to really exercise, like rather than operating in fear that you have to vote against someone, you right. can vote confidently, I can vote for the person I want. And yeah. you know, the reorganization of the votes will still ultimately make the, you know, maybe the least bad candidate. You know, your, your final outcome might be the least bad, but you can always express your most desirable choice, which is, I mean, is there anything more American than like, you know, a, a well-represented individual? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And just for those who might not be familiar, just really briefly. So our default voting system where you're just picking one person is called first past the post. And, you know, while it is the sort of simplest and most naive, it definitely has like a lot of seriously unintended side effects, like spoiler candidates and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so the, the rank choice voting that uh, Andrew and I are talking about, it's just the, basically you just put, I want this, this candidate is my first choice. This candidate is my second, and this is my third. And there's some like slightly involved math to make it cash out. But it means that if you can still pick your favorite person as first, uh, but if they, if they aren't going to win, if it's clear that they aren't, then your second choice will still matter. Right. Did I do that justice? I think so. I mean, yep. um, that's, that's definitely accurate. And, yep. um, you know, I was thinking about Yang and, you know, it's like the, 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 the thing for Yang is ranked choice voting is actually very agreeable, but this almost gets back to your original question on how to go about getting the people involved. And, right. you know, he didn't have to create a, his own party to do this, you know, the, the forward party, their, their whole platform is basically like you know, change the electoral system. It's not even mm-hmm. necessary. Like that's, I don't yep. know what their roadmap is for policy, but that is their clear agenda, at least right now. And so part of his approach, and this was the same with president, which was like, do something that is a little unordinary um, mm-hmm. because there's a million think tanks and nonprofits and people just are kind of trained to ignore them, unfortunately. Um there was actually a meeting that happened with Yang. I don't know if he's ever told this publicly. In 2018, there was a major third party approached him. Um, not like Libertarian, not a party anyone's heard of, but they, mm-hmm. I don't know, hard to describe. But they they yep. had a lot of influence, but they're not actually who you think it would be. Approached him saying, hey, you should run for 
I think they said governor of New York or something. And they were basically just bagging him saying like, you know, running for president, you'll never get the attention on the cause you want and all these things. And he was like, you're talking to me because I'm running for president. <laughs> I was in the room and I was like, wow, he yeah. just owned these guys. I mean, That's great. That's um, great. Yeah. yeah, it worked. And, you know, honestly, like I will say um, it like the Andrew Yang campaign reading his book was the one thing that made me feel good about being patriotic again, Um, Mm. you know, for so long, you know, especially in (laughs) coastal cities, (laughs) I tended to find that that was a hard uh, emotion to sort of channel. But uh, but definitely that Yang stuff made me. carry a lot more flags around. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, well, anyway, to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it was a, um, you know, it was well-designed to include a lot of people who have otherwise felt disenchanted yeah. by the political system. Um, our, our bet was definitely, you know, we thought, we thought we could get way more of the public activated, but, Unfortunately, there's just like such a massive majority of the public that's just so disenchanted that the message doesn't even reach them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, yeah, I mean, we just, you know, even in the last election cycles, you know, you still have like 35% of the population is in voting that could. um, So how how do you reach those people? I know some of those people who are, you know, our age and I'm just like, what will it take? But anyways. um, Yeah, totally. Well, so, you know, coming back a little bit to the uh, Good Life movement and, um, you know, I'll let you, if, if you want to just give us a, you know, a, a top level, I know we haven't really opened that up formally yet, but um, but I'm curious just to hear if you've had any thoughts on how to take some of that, you know, either Yang energy or, you know, I, I'm stoked to hear what other types of hats we might be having because it does sound like <laughs> like making that really seem like a thing is important to, in demonstrating that voting block, right? So, yeah, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what you're intending there. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I only launched this in October, um, so it's a young organization and I am very excited for the potential uh, long-term to do a lot of fun, exciting marketing things. Um, I'm already getting some merch ideas percolating, but um, the bigger picture for us is really that, like our main goal is to make mental health a top 10 political cause in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, our main goal is to you know, end the mental health crisis and like, um, you know, really reinvigorate our communities and heal the nation really. But to do that strategically, our main goal is to make mental health a top 10 political cause in the country. And again, that goes back to like the very factually based um, incentive structures of politicians. Mm -hmm. So right now in the country, um, again, mental health is very popular, even within like the legislative class. Um, When you look at the general sentiment, Democrats, like legislators, love mental health, but the problem is they don't prioritize it. And Republicans actually like mental health as well, um, but they don't really, uh, they're not a reliable vote. Um, Mm. You know, so if it comes to gun control or something, um, they might not vote for it. Um, And so really, again, the, what's missing is that the majority of the people in the country who 
love and care about mental health are not involved and they're not making or, or they're not um, you know, getting together and making the phone calls and things like that. And it's not a knock on the public. I, I've actually put this critique on the mental health field that they've ne- never actually gone out and just recruited the public saying, mm. hey, here's the vision, here's the plan, here's the organization, let's go like fight for this. Um, and so, you know, I've said this to the mental health field and I've made many friends because I've diagnosed it accurately, which is there is no vision that has been communicated to the public. Literally the only thing that's been communicated, like when you ask the public, like what the plan is for mental health, Again, this is like the wide general public. They think of like more drugs and mm. more therapy, and that doesn't really invigorate people to like go fight for something. The reality yeah. is like the solutions are much better than that. At the same time, literally, no, they, they've never just gone out and actively recruited the public. So, you know, if you think about the mental health conversation in the media or wherever, the story has usually always been like, Hey, this is important. Like, here's my personal story. And yet it's rarely like, Hey, this is the organization over there that we can go sign up for to fight for this certain bill or legislation. And so that Mm -hmm. disconnect is like one of the major things missing. Um, and again, like you have to fold in the public, uh, because I always give this example on how I talk about, um, the public's influence on politicians. So we've already touched on this a bit, but again, Politicians are um, reactive uh, to what votes them in or out of office. And to have direct influence, you have to sway a huge voting block. And the example I give usually is this thing that I call like the pretzel union. So imagine like, it doesn't exist, but imagine like the pretzel industry has a union, very niche. Um, And let's say they have 200 members and they get everyone together. They get 100% activation. They get all 200 members to call Nancy Pelosi and say, hey, um, Nancy, please pass our pretzel legislation. The thing is, Nancy Pelosi like won't probably do anything, and it's not a her problem. It's just that otherwise she's dealing with like war, and famine, and poverty, and mass shootings, and all these like really uh, important things. And again, there's like hundreds of thousands of people calling her about that, and so yeah. it, it, it's like very binary where it's like. If you have 200 people, you can have everyone calling. If you have 200 people calling, like, it's not that they don't like what you're doing. It's just like, they got a lot of other things going on that they'll lose their seat over. Right. Um, And so you just have to reach a threshold where you literally have enough people where you can swing some votes. And it is a little bit uh, zero sum because there's only a hundred percent of a vote and people vote on something. So you Mm -hmm. have to make mental health like a top cause. Um, And so Again, like when I think about this, the mental health field, um, they're all actually doing calls like the, the traditional establishment institutions, the American Psychological Association, like uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Like these organizations make calls, but they just don't have the volume to like really move the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they know that they've like there's a reason I hang out with them all the time. We're all friends. And so my organization is saying like, OK, we have to get this massive sum of the public involved in our approach. Our, our, our special sauce is really that we have an emphasis on the social determinants of health. And the way I break down our vision is it's sort of a two-part plan. Um, and the way I describe it is like the mental health crisis in our country is, you know, it's like a house is on fire. Like it's like completely ablaze. Um, and we've never built the fire department. And so <laughs> on, the, the, on the one hand, you know, you need to build the fire department. And that's like establishing a functional care system. I could sit here and talk for 
an hour about the history of our care system and how screwed over and discriminated against it's been. But mm -hmm. this is like the 988 number, you know, mobile crisis teams, um, you know, taking on insurance companies who are literally just like screwing people up or screwing people over, denying claims, making it really hard to find a therapist. Um, and then, you know, things like investing in like getting counselors in our uh, education system, teaching life skills is at the forefront of the mental health field right now. Um, like social and emotional learning, you know, wholesome stuff. That is how I define the fire department and like build out the care system. There's much more to it. But at the same time, at some point you need to start asking, why is everything on fire? And the reality yeah. is that it's like the lifestyles and the social determinants of health. We've like created a system in the U.S. that is just crushing people. Um, you know, we, you know, pursuit of happiness is our goal. Um, but the way things have been set up are that we believe money is an appropriate proxy to well-being and happiness. And so we've been saying, okay, economic growth will make people happier when so frequently at this point in like industrial late stage capitalism, uh, economic growth is coming at the expense of people. It's like the opposite of our goal. Our goal. So yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you see a similar through line here, I think, in some of the discussions around um, universal basic income um, as well, and, you know, in other areas, but but again, here in mental health, where there seems to be this uh, individualizing of the problems, right? Where it's like your mental health problem, your financial problem, rather, you know, it's, it's easier to sort of put that blame on the individual rather than sort of societal issues. You know what I mean? No, you're definitely right. Um, I mean, that's something a professor said to me, which was that, you know, the, the, the problem with how we're talking about the mental health crisis is that we're individualizing societal problems, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, it's like, you know, individual choice weighs into it a lot, um, for sure. And, you know, I'm trying to think, um, you know, individual choice. And like when, when someone says like individualizing a societal problem, it's mm -hmm. we're really treating it in like individualized ways. It's like you said, it's looking at an individual and saying, oh, this thing is bad. Hmm. What are the circumstances? Like, oh, it's because you're not working out. It's because you're, you know, ruminating. It's because you're um, not taking the psychiatric medicine you were prescribed. Those things sort of play in. But again, when you think about the larger picture, why, like, why, why is this like a widespread chronic illness? Um, mm -hmm. And so yeah. much of it goes back to obvious things that we're lacking um, across the board in society. And, you know, of course, there's ways to deal with all those things. And, you know, we have ideas of the good life movement, but that's, uh, I'll, I'll pin it there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And it's definitely possible for both of these things to be true, right? That like, you know, personal responsibility is important to make progress on this, but also if we, if we overly focus on that angle, then you're going to miss a lot of the forest for the trees or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I was thinking on your sort of, how do you build that voting block question? Right. And it's interesting because it seems like a lot of that comes down to how big of a tent can you build, right? Like, can you get the yogis and the psychiatrists in the same room, you know, fighting for the same thing, right? Um, yeah. That how is, is, yeah, what's your thoughts there? How has that been going? Do you think that that's possible? Do you think, yeah. Um, that is um, what we are trying to do. And mm -hmm. uh, I genuinely stress about it a lot because, you know, in, in the building of this organization, it, I've lost a lot of sleep over this problem. Um, 
because it's, it's a very wide tent, but it is what we are lacking. Like the mental health field right now has all the niche little um, tribes of, you know, mm -hmm. there's um, substance use communities and there's family right. communities. Um, if anything, a lot of people say what's missing is a consumer advocacy, which is basically just mm. the public at large. It's just the individuals. Um, and that is what we're trying to be. But again, it's, it's a really big tent and especially, especially with the way we're approaching it, but I think it's the only honest way to do it, which is marrying those two things, which is like build the fire department and also ask, why is it, why is everything on fire? Mm -hmm. Um, th that is really our marrying it. We'll yeah. see how far we can get with a big tent. Um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. A lot of our vision and policies, which we haven't really gotten into too much, but a lot of our vision and policies are really intentionally designed to be the things everyone can agree on. Um, so when I talked about, you know, 988 and when I talked about youth education and, you know, the care system, the fire department, there's a vision that the mental health field um, wrote together that it's called the unified vision. It was written in released in December, 2020. Hmm. And it's this vision. Um, you know, it's not like the most progressive, you know, you know, social reform for the 21st century, but it's a very solid plan that is co-signed by like 70 to 80 different advocacy organizations in this field, which is to me almost an unprecedented achievement that you could get 70 to 80 organizations that represent so many different little demographics in a very like highly sensitive field where there's so many, you know, it's, it, mm -hmm. this isn't, you know, we're not talking about like agriculture, this is right. life and death. This is, you know, civil rights in many instances. So getting that many people to sign on to something is a tremendous achievement. Um, it's bipartisan, like everyone generally agrees on it. So that, constitutes the majority of our vision where it's like, these are things that everyone agrees on. Um, and again, we're co-signing that because it's, um, you know, we're, we are trying to build this big tent where it's like, these are things everyone agrees on. We all know we want, you know, a, a mobile crisis team. We all know we want, um, you know, better insurance coverage. You know, I could get much deeper mm -hmm. into the specifics, but our special sauce again, with the social determinants, that is our own flavor. But what we're advocating for on that, because I thought about this a lot, how do you talk about the social determinants of health um, without becoming the everything organization that just supports everything? Because social mm. determinants of health, that's housing, it's diet, it's working out, community, meaning, you know, right? how do you actually advocate for that without just literally standing for nothing? Mm -hmm. And so we advocate for a new measurement of social progress, which is called mm. gross domestic well-being, Nice. which is really like the single lever that will allow it, it, it's like the one it's like the single lever within society that will actually allow us to over time collectively improve the social determinants of health um because again it gets back to this problem where evaluating progress in society based on primarily economic progress and that has been proven out as like a fairly flawed idea um, there are some correlations, but it's not absolute. And so as you see in the U.S., um, GDP has been rising. Even GDP per capita has been rising since the 70s, uh, and life satisfaction has been stalled since the 70s. Right. And so 
that contradiction is what we're looking into. And there are countries all around the world right now, the UK, Finland, Canada, you know, uh, New Zealand, many others who are shifting to literally well-being economies where they um, have a new measurement. And again, it's nothing like radical. It's just a new measurement measuring how people are doing every day. Um, and you can actually see how your policies are doing rather than just like hoping it goes well. The UK measures it every week and they can literally see nice. when they make an economic change. Um, like, oh, look at that. Like, you know, what was it? Liz Trust came in and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tanked the economy. <laughs> like, oh, people aren't doing so well this week. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot more I could unpack of that, but I'll, you know, I'll pin it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's right. It just seems like it's like running a website these days while intentionally ignoring, you know, traffic rates or something like that, right? You're, you're, you're like completely ignoring a primary metric that, that matters. And it's, so it's impossible to really optimize until you're doing that, right? I think is what you're kind of pointing yeah, at. It's, it, it, it's, extremely, it, it's extremely bizarre to me. We measure so many things in this country. We literally just do not collectively, routinely measure the well-being of our people. We have health indicators. You know, we had talked about this in the pre-call about you know, qualities and dollies, which are yep. you know um, primarily around like disability, adjusted life years, and um, yep. you, yeah. you know. But we just don't have a single measure of like how how are people doing. There are right. some third-party people who do like life satisfaction surveys every decade, and that's it. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we measure mass scores. We measure we measure every metric, but we can literally just ask people super reliable, super validated, uh, within rigorous studies for decades. And we just don't actually measure it here in the U S it's bananas to me. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you could definitely imagine, I don't know how hard these conversations are, but it's definitely something where you could imagine a Facebook or a Google, um, being open to throw in a survey in front of folks or, you know, there, there's plenty of arms of these companies that are at least ostensibly trying to do these sorts of good projects. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of avenues, um, mm -hmm. many different sampling methods. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for us, again, you know, every country has to create their own because uh, a good right. well-being measurement is uh, culturally sensitive and you just have to uh, be aware of who you're asking and the words you use and, you know, what, you know, all that stuff. So you know, totally. we, we literally are advocating for like our actual like legislative ask is we're going to be, we already are advocating for a, uh, an executive order from the president to create a president's commission on uh, the new measurements of well-being. And so that would be a committee that would spend two or three years basically figuring out the actual roadmap. Um, because again, we just need to start moving the ball forward. It's going to take a long time to institute this. Um, but we could probably do it much faster once we like figure out exactly what we want to build as a nation. Um, like you can start collecting data you know, the next, you know, two yeah. months later. Um, totally. It's, it's not super complex. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's probably a good time for us to, you know, take a look, you know, here at reroute, we like to talk about the road that we're on by default and then the way, the places we can get if we take a different one. Right. And so, you know, to get a little dark here for a second, like where do we get if we don't make any changes? <laughs> like it, what, it just keeps getting more and more individualized and, uh, you know, expensive. And yeah, like, I don't know, like where do you see us going if we don't make some of these reforms? 
You know, it is interesting because I think so much about what it would be like if we, um, if we uh, did make the reforms. Right. So I, I think a lot about the, the, the beautiful world, but right. you know, the reality is, I think some of our biggest threats here, and the reason we talk about the social determinants of health are because there are mega macro systems that are just crushing the people. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, you know, again, uh, one thing I want to clarify earlier, I, you know, when I said the social determinants of health are like, why everything's catching on fire. It's obviously a bit more nuanced than that. You certainly have like genetics and other, um, other environmental factors. So I, I just want to always give sure. credence to like, you know, you know, some people you can have the perfect setup and still, um, yeah, fall into an illness, but um, many of these macro systems and flows are uh, creating much of, you know, the illness and the fire. You know, one of the things I always talk about social media, um, despite my line of work as a marketing person, um, I have hated social media since I was in high school, like going mm-hmm. back to the 2010. Um, and so you think about something like that, like where does society go if you let wealth inequality uh, right. you know, social media go unchecked, climate go unchecked. It's, I, mean, I guess it's we've seen pretty, a couple of those movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it, it, it's yeah. not a good outcome. And at a minimum from the lens of like mental health, it's just total despair. Right. Um, I mean, literally. It, yeah. Like some of the most striking research I've read is that, the highest correlate between depression and suicide is a lack of meaning. And the greatest driver of meaning is community and belonging. And yeah. the second item is purpose, like mm. a, just a, a reason to live. Yeah. Um, like, you know, a sense of like you're here to do something. Yeah. Somebody needs you or yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, wealth inequality, like one of the things I talk about is like, you know, people being fe- squeezed financially has really led to a lot of the deconstruction of community mm-hmm. and um, purpose because people are leaving the, the home communities they're in. This was Andrew Yang's original thesis with Venture mm-hmm. for America is the flows of human capital in the United States. People right. are leaving their home communities and their, where they belong to go to these like consolidated centers of talent and opportunity, you know, New York, Chicago, L.A., and otherwise, like there's limited opportunity, especially if you're someone who like got saddled with college debt. You know, we can sit here right. just to talk about how, yeah. how bad things are. Um, sure. You know, I, I, I do have my moments of, you know, see the silver lining of things. But I mean, people are just fundamentally uh, stressed across the board. Yeah. Um, and and ju- just to clarify, yeah, so this was Yang's uh, um, initiative for kind of creating um, – like startup, yeah, inno- yes. like innovation hubs in different smaller cities around the U.S., right? Yeah. yeah. The, the interesting yeah. thing about what it was, just to clarify, because yeah. sure. I yeah. always thought it very brilliant. He basically looked at the numbers and he saw all the, you know, you know, smart, enterprising people from across the country um, were basically being cherry picked into the top universities. Um, so let's say you're a super enterprising person out of Missouri, um, rather than staying in Missouri and bringing opportunity to Missouri, you might have ended up going to Harvard and then Harvard, um, funneled everyone into like, like 80% of their students into 
uh, one of like five industries, which is like doctor, lawyer, mm-hmm. consultant mm-hmm. into five different cities, basically. And so he was like, there's this talent drain on the whole country that's just leaving them behind. So right. that was what he was trying to fix the flows of human capital. I always thought it was extremely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's keen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> this is this is where we continue to go. And, you know, I, I, I would see, you know, on this default road, you know, it seems like both these correlates and also just kind of like people's raw well-being seems, you know, I don't know the numbers on this, right? But it seems highly um, correlated with, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more domestic terrorism problems and all this kind of stuff, right? And it just seems oh, yeah. like it's, it's, it's a dial on so many of these other issues that we're having. Uh, but, and also on the, uh, you know, right. Like, as you're saying in the beginning, right. It's the, it's the, the quality of the, uh, uh thinking and electorate <laughs> pretty still pretty directly drives our democracy. Right. So, um, I, I, I'm totally with you. I mean, I've yep. always, you know, in, in the mental health field, I've had, you know, certainly my, my years and years of, uh, emotional distress and depression mm-hmm. and all sorts of things people are always asking me like, why are you in this? And Mm -hmm. a lot of like the traditional mental health field, they're in it because usually um, someone they know uh, died by suicide or Mm. they had um, attempted it themselves. But many of them, I feel like are shocked when I, you know, I say this is just like the most important thing in society Mm. because you know, again, I have my lived experience and they certainly yeah. think the same, but they're almost like, but why would you, like, there must be another reason because mm. I, I, I get, I guess a lot of the field has just been, and really society is just like for so long neglected this like extremely obvious thing. And this gets to your point here, which is like, if you improve mental health, if you improve people's well being, make them happier, everything else improves. People right. are more creative. People are, you know, there's less domestic abuse. If you have like better communities, you know, literally you see like less extremism, right? I mean, people are more productive in the workplace. Children are raised better. They're happier. They're more conscientious and wholesome. I mean, everything improves if you can like pull this one lever. Mm-hmm. And so this has always been obvious to me. And I've always been stunned why I have feel like I'm like, you know, fighting against the systems here. If you're a lawmaker or someone, every day you should be thinking about how can we like thread the needle here and pull the one hidden lever that will just improve well-being and there's a lot of interesting research actually going on on, on, into like what are like those silver bullets um we don't have it again we need to build the fire department it's not like the most cost-effective stuff like someone's in the house right now you don't go and figure out the optimal fabric of the hose you just going through, you know, save mm-hmm. someone's life. Yep. Um, but there is interesting research on, you know. The- and we probably shouldn't just dump a bunch of lithium in the water. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know if you've seen those studies at all. But I, I have heard of that. It, it is actually creative thinking. Um, but yeah. I, I, I don't think that would probably be the path. I, I, I think I agree with you, but it is interesting. They've seen all these natural experiments where basically people are just like significantly happier in places where there's more natural lithium content in the water. <laughs> anyway, it's... Um, uh, I mean, lithium is genuinely used in many medications yeah, I mean, for bipolar disorder. It is, yeah. Um, lithium is 
the treatment. It's the medication. Yeah. Just lithium. Um, to be clear, the biggest critique against it is that the levels of lithium in the waters are much lower than a normal therapeutic dose. But regardless, it's a it's a uh, <laughs> uh, road we could go, uh, uh, rabbit hole. But um, you know, I think the you know one of the things on this that I do think is critical to sort of point at right is that. Um, there has been so much stigma around the concept of mental health for so long, right? And particularly in the ways that it's framed, right? You know, you're like becoming not crazy, right? But if you go, right? <laughs> so it's it's already assuming this sort of negative state. And, you know, I think that this is one of the things that kind of you're in my generation and, and especially the sort of upcoming generations are really helping uh, to do, right? Which is to reframe uh, mental health as a positive thing, as sort of, you know, improvements and upgrades to your life rather than fixing, you know, <laughs> flaws in you, right? And just and just making that something that we're willing to talk about. And I think that, I, like, my guess is that that's where some of this stuff is coming from on these people that you're talking to, right? Is they're, they're just not used to it being championed, right? It's something that you kind of have to do in secret <laughs> is admit that you need help, mm-hmm. quote unquote, right? Um and so yeah, the, I'm excited to see that change. The, the stigma is a very interesting conversation because um, what the numbers are actually starting to show are that um, mild to moderate mental illnesses have seen a large reduction in uh, stigma, but serious mental illnesses, in particular anything relating to psychosis, have mm-hmm. uh, actually worsened, especially specifically schizophrenia. Um, like people with those sorts of um, illnesses are seeing more uh, discrimination. And Got so it. that's, you know, just always trying to do my part to be like, you know, to work on that stigma. It's, it's one of the things we have to do. Um, but, but really the stigma, it has such a, until I got in the field, I didn't realize the layers of its uh you know, the, the trickle down of its effect um, because of the stigma, you know, it's like it, it, you know, when you look at the research and data and stuff, you can literally see like a, a trend line where, you know, the stigma and its intensity and stuff leads to like less in research funding. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, and, and it, and it creates like a really difficult patient ecosystem where uh, mental health, treatments have some of the lowest adherence rates of any treatment. Um, you know, it's hmm. like one of the few medical fields where people will actively um, resist uh, the things that will often improve their outcomes. Like uh, for psychiatric medicine, the adherence rate is under 40%. Um, hmm. And, you know, there, there, there's a saying in the mental health field that um, mental illnesses are the, the non-casserole uh, illness, because if, you know, if you're a family and your son gets cancer, everyone in the community comes together at the casserole. Um, and if they get schizophrenia, yeah, like right. no one talks about it. So right. it's just, it's really interesting when you st- start to unpack it. Um, and it, it, yeah. it's had just so many institutional, um, effects. And then you do uh, probably, I don't even know if I should, I should go here, but you have the, the counter sort of reactionary position on this too, which is like, no, you should never, if somebody has, you know, 
you know, narcissistic personality disorder or some of these other things. It's like, no, you should never hold this against somebody like, you know, it's just people being neurodivergent or whatever. Right. And so you get this sort of like apologist uh, behavior for sort of bad behavior that stems from some of this stuff too. And so it's just, there's definitely nuance, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is where I think a lot about the really big umbrella, um, Mm. you know, just like you see in any field. I mean, it's like a, uh, extreme version of that in the mental health field. You know, there's so many, um, different perspectives on how to approach it. Yes. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a subgroup called, um, mad pride, which advocates for people with schizophrenia or, um, various forms of psychosis or delusions where they're like, I hear voices and that's fine. It's like, mm. hmm, it's interesting. Like, yeah, like I actually met an individual, um, at a conference that I was at in upstate New York. Um, and he was a, you know, very, you know, let's say socially adjusted and, you know, generally doing well individual. And he you know, still hears voices every day. And he was like, I've just learned to recognize the distinction. I don't know if I'm representing yep. the mad, mad pride group totally accurately here. I mean, that's how it's been explained to me, but, mm-hmm. um, I think there's something to it, but again, like usually I think the way a lot of people think about it is, does this um, does this illness or, or, or divergency uh, prevent you from reaching your goals? Like that's mm-hmm. how a lot yep. of people think about intervention. Yeah, um, same with addiction, not, right? Yeah, define. Yeah, that it's way. not like yep. involuntary intervention, but just as an individual, how to make your own choice. And you know, for many people, their goals are to like have a happy marriage or something. And if your bipolar disorder or not bipolar disorder, uh, like if your narcissistic personality disorder is preventing that, then like, you know, it's up to you to decide, but it's sort of stopping you from reaching your goal. I think I would put an asterisk on that too, though, right? Is, you know, and I, I oftentimes hear it uh, said as consequences, right? Like it's an addiction if it has consequences for your life, right? But I think there's also, this is where it gets trickier, right? But there's this asterisk of like for your life or for those around you or like in your community, mm-hmm. right? And that's where it seems like it gets a little trickier, but, um, mm. but it's still important. Yeah. I mean, this, yeah. The, yeah, this gets really deep into like the philosophy and morality of, you know, just individual social responsibility. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, some of this is to say that I do appreciate the way that you're looking at this, which is like, okay, let's set the high level metrics. Let's focus on that, right? Because there is all these gnarly challenges, right? But if you can get people, you know, shooting for the same goals, you know, collaborating on the same metrics, using that to drive decision making, then a lot of the stuff gets decided in, you know, smaller subcommittees or, you know, by folks who are closer on the ground, right? Uh, so... Yeah, the, the, the metrics thing is really interesting. So uh, in the UK, I mentioned there, so, so the UK created gross domestic well-being under uh, the conservative prime minister, David Cameron, in I think it was uh, 2011, 2012. Um, and so they've been sort of at this for a while. And they've utilized this measurement to already um, pass some like major uh, legislation that has had tremendous outcomes, which I, I can get into the specifics of those. But a lot of their methodology here is because they've had a decade, they're assembling what I almost look at as like potentially one of the most important bodies of human knowledge that we'll ever have, which is um, comprehensive, totally valid, 
totally reliable data on like what creates well-being and you know each policy because they've been measuring it for so long you know it's literally called the green handbook through their treasury department and they're you know it's it's obviously still early and not complete by any measures but they have like weighted distributions and like you know metrics for you know i don't know what the total quantity is but let's say dozens hundreds of policies where it's like we made this change it had this effect on this community on over this time scale this is what you can assume is like um you know your increase in well-being will be you know 0.5 which you, you know they literally have a number between 10,000 and 16,000 pounds is how they can weight one uh, point of life satisfaction and well-being to a resident. Um, and I know that to me is such a different way of just organizing society because rather than frankly, like guesswork and predictions, you know, especially like with the quality and Dolly measurements. Um, so, you know, just for context for anyone listening, uh, Dolly is uh, disability adjusted life years and quality is quality adjusted life years. And basically these are like questions. This is like the only other metric besides money that we're really using in society to at the highest level make decisions. Yeah. Um, and they're purely and it, based on predictions of right. asking people like, mm. Hey, how bad would it be if you had, you know, literally they're time-based predictions where they say, you know, how bad do you think your life would be if you had, um, you know, this ailment or something. And, you know, one of the problems with that, just to you know, close out this rant, is that mental illness in particular is uh, one of the most poorly forecasted ailments in humanity. So depression was um, compared with a limp. They asked people, um, you know, to, to rate the, the burden of, you know, disease per se. Depression on average was viewed as equally bad as having a slight limp. And then the facts of like how people experience it, depression is 10 times worse, 10 times more debilitating. And we look at that and we say, like most people would say, oh, you know, a limp is you know, just as bad as depression. Um, and so, so we're just like flawed in our ability uh, to make this prediction. So qualities and dollies are not right. going to be interesting society. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, it's interesting, right? Because these, these metrics come across as, as so distasteful in a sense, right? So cold, but it is kind of this thing where it's like, okay, well, if you're sitting in this room trying to decide where, you know, the aid's going, right? Like you, you kind of need some of these metrics and maybe they're not ideal right now. Right. But there is a, uh, it's kind of hard to escape them. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, yeah. and you know, if there was anything I could qualify or clarify on what I just said, you know, Yep. I call them bad. I mean, they're not bad metrics. They are um, better than nothing. And it was an advancement when we started using them. But we have, um, obviously, it's still early, but the uh, well-being measurements are uh, very promising in what they can do. And seeing at this point, five, six, seven um, governments beginning to utilize it is, is, is very exciting. And I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it's something we obviously need here in the United States, and that's why we're fighting for the Good Life Movement. Um, yeah, makes sense. I, I think it's the one thing we could do that could really um, usher in a new era. And more than anything, I think it's very symbolic. 
um, you know, to the people, it would be very exciting if we created a new measurement mm-hmm. and um, began to think about that as like an explicit goal for, yes. for just ourselves. Uh, like that, that is refreshing. Are you familiar with uh, QRI at all, the Quality Research Institute? Uh, no. Yeah, so they, um, we, we actually tried to do a podcast with them because <laughs> they're great, but their work is very esoteric. <laughs> it gets very complicated very fast, so we haven't quite figured out how to do an episode, but, uh, but, but interesting folks to talk to. They do, um, they try to do just kind of like very, um, I don't know, maybe nuts and bolts level understanding of um, positive and negative valence in the brain and use psychedelics to sort of invoke these states mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're quite, quite interesting folks trying to throw a very particular type of rigor at this question. Um, hmm. But, uh, I'll, I'll have to look them, look into them. I mean, there's a lot of people doing lots of interesting work. I mean, I'm optimistic yeah. sometimes. Uh, yeah. Look at what people are working on. And it's tricky, right? Because sometimes the, uh, the really bad ideas are really uh, like are closely adjacent to the good ones, <laughs> right? Like if somebody told me, yeah, there's this Institute doing like psychedelic research on happiness or whatever, I'd be like, okay, I, I don't know if this is just an absolute BS organization or if they're actually doing smart stuff. Right. So it takes a lot. Yeah. To there very out. much is, um, you know, when, when you have to condense things down to just a short little summary, it, it, it blurs yeah. the lines. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, you know, I there was one thing that I did want to come back to on this politician scorecard. And I, and I wanted to make sure that we had a clear distinction for the audience, right? There's this metric, which is kind of like a national metric on like how we're doing, right? But then you were also talking about sort of individual scorecards for politicians, right? And this is things that we oftentimes hear about with like the what like the NRA, right? Has like a scorecard where it's like, how good are you, quote unquote, on, you know, mm-hmm. Second Amendment rights? Or, you know, I'm sure there's probably like a union scorecard, right? Um, I don't know what some of the other ones are, but... Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that um, I don't know if you have much, many thoughts on what's going in there so far, but if I can uh, vote to add one, <laughs> add an element to the SCO card, it, uh, and I think that this is our generation helping normalize this, but I really want to hear from any one of these damn politicians on the debate stage, what have you done for self-improvement, right? Like what have you done to, to, to make it so that you treat people around you better, right? Like, is it a, is it a meditation habit? Is it like I go to talk therapy? Is it like I, you know, literally like run and scream profanities and this is how I get myself into better places. Like, I just want to know, like, what are you doing? Right. And so, you know, having somebody <laughs> actually self-describe, <laughs> I would love to see in that scorecard. <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, I, I will, think about it a bit more. I mean, it would be a, yep. certainly a hard sell at the uh, institutional level, but totally um, and it is a little provocative, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my fear on questions like that is you know, many of these politicians are so trained to, um, you know, just, just say very agreeable things. And so, right. Um, you know, I think they'd all just say, you know, I, I go on a walk, and I, <laughs> you know, so like, right. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, <laughs> that's it's what true. I feel like the, the answer would be, but, but more, more than anything, it would be normalizing a bit for just like, um, you know, self-care basically. Um, right. Uh, yeah. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things where it's also, you don't, what's the, the phrase they say, you like, don't know the, uh, that you were sick until you've had the cure. 
kind of deal. Right. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I've seen so many and it's also, you know, and this is, this is a complexity that, that we can also dive into a little bit. Right. But like, you know, so I've had some, some challenges over the last, you know, couple of years and uh, just different social things and, and, and other sorts of interpersonal challenges, but it has shocked me the um, like <laughs> cornucopia of different routes towards wellness that exist. Right. And, and how many of them are reasonably legit? Like some of them I would say that um, uh, aren't, but you know, you look, you're like, okay, like I can see like why this tapping thing works. I can see why this form of talk therapy works. I can see why internal family systems works. I can see how meditation works. I can see how stoicism works. Right. And it's like, there's not a one size fit all. It's different for everybody. We need to make sure that any of our policies support this, but we also need to be able to figure out which of these interventions are pseudoscience and which aren't right. And that's also tricky. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort of, you know, either how we champion or manage the the sort of number of options at our disposal here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's that's a good question. And um, I I think what you were referencing earlier is it's called a nosinosia, which is when someone has, generally in reference to like mental illness and they don't realize they're sick. It's obviously generally um, talked about with people with like schizophrenia. They don't often realize. Um, Perhaps. I think I'm saying something even more general though, which is yeah, like, I, I think you yeah. are. Um, yeah. I don't know how far that word applies to <laughs> just anything, but I, I get your point um, yeah. to the question. Um, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting point and, when I began the work around the good life movement, I, I mean, I've been researching this for two years almost, and I went mm-hmm. very far and wide. I also wasn't certain this is what I was going to build. I started with a completely clean slate and asked myself, like, how do we systemically take on the mental health crisis? I went into, I went really deep into individual therapy and counseling and like what mm-hmm. that looks like, you know, I went just super far and wide. And to your point, I literally had a spreadsheet of all the different ideologies and all the different ways I, I, cause I'm with you. I was trying to compile all the different paths and I'd actually considered a, you know, building a private company that would help mm-hmm. people navigate, like find their treatment, you know, loose modality or yeah. ideology. Yeah. 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 Um, that being said, especially in regards to pseudoscience, I mean, one of the things that the good life movement is intentionally trying to do to actually deal with this is, through this big tent, it's almost exactly what you said earlier, intentionally designing an organization that unites the psychiatrists and the yogis. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I I often call, um, you know, you just sort of have this one half of, let's say thought leadership around mental health right now, which is what Mm -hmm. I I sort of reference as like the TikTok, um, the TikTok class. Interesting. And I, I don't even mean that in a demeaning way. It's just like, I don't know how to define this like, grouping of um, sort of like influencers who, you know, are really at the forefront of influence. And the, the problem is there, you know, I talk about this in the white paper, the good life movement. I think it's like 70% of the top mental health influencers on you know, the top hundred, I think it was on uh, Instagram have like no training at all in anything. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I see your point, which is like, how do you merge that? And when you go on those accounts, they're like 80% accurate. You know, they right. are talking yeah. about trauma and stuff, but then, um, 
like astrology sort of like. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So, so I am ultimately trying, you know, I think we can find a lot of common ground. And the thing is, I'm not even saying like, you know, get rid of astrology because one of the benefits around mental health and treatment and stuff is like the placebo effect is very, very real. And sometimes people just need a place where they feel their identity and feel seen. And, you know, sometimes if that's through astrology, you know, whatever it takes, um, you know, obviously there can be some negative consequences if that goes too far and someone is like uh, letting that make life decisions for them. But yeah, and particularly if, speaking, if it's using taxpayer money, I think that's where, it, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, I bring this up because I do know that the UK has had some battles with this, right? Where it's like, do we fund the acupuncture? Do we fund, right? Um, mm. And so, you know, it's, it's, but I do like the, you know, you're pointing at this big tent thing, right? And there is kind of, it, it gives me some hope of like, okay, well, if you can really build like a, coalition like that that you know maybe there's internal regulation that can happen right like if you really can get the psychiatrists and the yogi sitting in the same room like with with enough of a diverse uh cohort you would hope that it would you'd be able to set up uh ways where they could identify the charlatans in the group you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah i mean i but- you know, it depends on definitely a, a little bit on the details of like how you're uh, assembling the group and, and you know, in, in what format. I mean, the good news is like the unified vision, which is drafted by many of the like sort of institutional advocacy organizations, I find it much better um, and refreshing than anyone would expect. Uh, you know, again, you get that many organizations to That's sign good. on. Yeah. Something, you think it's going to be very watered down. Again, it's not like the and all be all, but it's going to take everyone getting together. Like I said, that's like the ultimate thesis of the good life movement. It's going to take everyone getting together and going to the government and saying like, Hey, this is the plan. I've talked to many people in government. I literally some people from the white house and they've said historically, the biggest problem with the mental health field, um, like pre COVID is that they were not working together. And Mm -hmm. so if there was a problem, 10 people would come to the table and they'd all say different things. And if you're the white house, you're like, so what do I do? Like go figure right. it out amongst yourself. So you like, this is my thing. It's like, I have all sorts of like potentially far out beliefs on like specific ideas or causes or, you know, niche ideas within the field. But we're, we're trying to take on a mental health crisis that is widespread across a country of 330, 340 million people which mm-hmm. is impacting one in five people annually. Less than half of those people are getting treatment. The suicide rates, um, like top 10 in the country, number two for youth under 17. So like, again, the house is on fire and it's like so much of what we're, we're doing is trying to get this massive swell of people. And so again, when I think about the unified vision, much better than you would expect. And there are pieces of it in there that, I think would be appealing to many of the um, like influencers and TikTokers and stuff. Like it's very, uh, you know, a lot of the vision accounts for things that people would be excited about. Again, uh, teaching life skills um, in school, social and emotional learning. I mean, everyone loves that. Even like meditative skills is part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have really bringing 
trauma-informed curricula into every step of the process. It's, you know, so, so rather than just like having a single model of therapy, it's um, rather than having a single model of like education, uh, you have uh, instructors and educators who are um, excited or, or excited, but they're, they're drafting content and being reactive to people's like traumas and stories and things like that. Like that's all part of the plan. Um, and I think that would be something much of the sort of uh, influencer class. Um, I, I need to come up with a better sort of like way to reference that because that sort of sounds a little demeaning and I, I don't mean it demeaning in any way, but it, I just literally don't know how to reference like that group of influencers that are like doing this work. Um, but I, I don't know, I'll pin it there. I mean, I, I could, of course, talk about all of this more, but and it's interesting, right? Because I've like I've worked with a lot of professionals on different, you know, the uh, dealt with some chronic pain stuff, and like I've worked with a lot of different professionals on this. But one of the guys who does the best job is just a random YouTuber who's read all the books, <laughs> and you know, he just has enough time and enough thoughtfulness to kind of put it together and synthesize the information and present it, right? And uh, and does it on a cadence totally. that works with people's lives, right? And you're like, okay, well, it's every day. There's a new video, or every, you know, right, what have you. So, yeah, I, you know, I think with you, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Just many of these people are um, they, like, again, they, like to me, the average is like 80% accurate. Like many of them are doing lots of right. uh, very good work and some of them are 90 to hundred um, percent. So. And so, yeah. And so I think the real question for me is right. Like, so a, like, you know, as you say, like, you know, maybe there's a, maybe that 80%, 20% thing is an important thing to focus on. But, but B, honestly, like the, the thing that I'm more, mostly curious about is like, how much training do you need to like cover important edge cases, right? Or like other, other professional issues, right? Like how do you make sure that like kind of professional ethics are communicated well? How do you make sure that like, you know, they, you know, the, uh, how, do they, how, do they, how do you make sure that like people have enough training where they're not getting sort of like overly traumatized by taking care of others, right? And I think that this leads us into, you know, maybe a, a last kind of focus of our conversation here today, which is this kind of concept of peer driven care that you've talked about. So um, mm -hmm. maybe if you want to introduce what that means in, in sort of uh, to you and, and we can keep talking about that. That's a good, good question. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the big picture, um, again, this is even part of the, the unified vision is uh, pure driven care. It mm -hmm. really gets back to this question of, um, so there's a few levels to this one. When, when you talk about like treatment and things around like the house is on fire, um, one, like treatments do actually work. Uh, like there's a lot of hesitation in society around like do treatments actually work? And they do. A lot of the problem is actually that our mental health care system like doesn't really exist. It's like super fragmented. It's this hodgepodge of like underfunding and discrimination over years. Um, so when you actually do it right, and it is what, what's usually called like coordinated care, which is like intentional timing. It's like precise of like, you know, this medication or this life change paired with this at this exact time, like the, the outcomes are um, quite encouraging. A derivative of that is the workforce because one of the biggest problems we have is um, not enough providers, not enough therapists, not enough um, support just in general. Uh, it's a very like, especially around therapy, uh, you know, it's a very one-on-one -on -one, uh, individualized driven treatment. So that's difficult. Um, and so one of the big problems is that 
if we actually made therapy accessible to everyone on a weekly basis through healthcare, um, and we were uh, training all of our therapists at a minimum, like two year social work degrees or a PhD in psychology, to be a psychologist, you have to have a PhD. And we'd all be paying like $10,000 a month for healthcare. Mm. And so the reality is you have to move towards uh, peer driven uh, support, which is, again, if you think, if you think about mental health as this continuum, like you have well-being, sort of social determinants on like maybe the left-hand side. And on the far right, you have like crisis stabilization, urgent care, residential treatment, mobile crisis teams. Somewhere in the middle is where you, you could help many, many people improve with, again, peer-driven support, which is usually somewhere between, you know, 40 hours to three weeks of training the costs are usually within 50 to $80 an hour, and that's pre healthcare. And the outcomes are, um, have been shown to be just about 80% as effective. Wow. Um, which isn't that shocking because, um, you know, the reality is so much of the time, especially in that like middle zone, uh, we're all just like sort of looking for someone who can like, we can talk to and guide us you know, you're not looking for someone to like solve your life's problems, but if you're looking for someone to listen a lot of the time, yeah, it's like you're looking for someone who can listen, but within, again, within like with very intentional strategic training for three weeks, like you can get someone a lot of like the basic skills of just like being a peer specialist that says like, wow, that's like really difficult. I know of this resource. I can point you in this direction or, you know, this is what's effective. You know, it's not, what I like about it is it's not overthinking um, and it's not uh, rather than like striving for the perfect system. Again, it's like, there's a good pun there about not overthinking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like, we got to do what we can. Like, again, the house is on fire. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is what, like, I wish everyone could talk to a psychologist all day, Mm -hmm. but where do you get those people who go through eight years of school? Totally. Um, Yeah. And again, like it's working and it's cheap. And so, so that's like one of the encouraging directions. It's going to take a long time for us to get there, but it's, I mean, it's part of the plan and I think it's a very beautiful vision. Yeah, I do too. And you know, it's, it's fascinating because some of these modalities too, right? You look at like, you know, EMDR and tapping and there's, there's some sort of halos of pseudoscience around a couple of these, but like the core stuff seems to work pretty well. And like, it takes like, a lot of this, you're just following a script, right? And it takes some empathy to, to, to like set up the right container and stuff like that, right? But mm-hmm. but it is it is wild how simple the actual procedures can be in some of these situations uh, with these treatments. But definitely, and uh, yeah. you know, p- part of it, of course, is especially within peer support. So much of it is um, being cognizant of like culture and who the individual is. So mm-hmm. on. Um, you know, the 988 hotline, the ideal system, this isn't necessarily true everywhere. Uh, but if you call in and you're a veteran, like you'll speak to a peer specialist who's also a veteran. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And that is small, very difficult to like do that at scale where you know, there's always a veteran, but you can see how that would be really uh, effective. Um, and so, 
yeah, you know, it, it's really long term. I think that the, the dream is you, you probably have like a very decentralized system where every a lot of care is very local, community driven. It's people who are familiar. I mean, so much of care for someone who has, you know, let's say someone's in an episode of acute psychosis and they go to the stabilization center or even residential. A lot of the care is like a stable home, like a routine where they go to bed at a certain time and they wake up and they make a contribution around the treatment center where they help sweep or make sure lunch or whatever. Um, and then they have like group therapy sessions with people who have very similar experiences. Um, and sometimes peer specialists come in from the community. It's like your old high school coach comes in and talks to the person and says, you know, Hey, I've known you for 10 years. Hope you're doing well. Like that is what a lot of treatment looks like. You certainly have uh, medication uh, as a part of that um, for, for many people, but like, that is really what it takes. It's, it's it, a lot of the time. It's just local familiarity, just stabilizing someone's life is a lot of, a lot of uh, treatment. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I like that it opens up, right? Cause there's, uh, and trust me, I have had my personal reservations about this, but you know, I think there's a lot of aversions to group therapy settings, right? And I think that the, um, uh, pure driven care model can offer sort of more cost effective things that, right. Cause the group is oftentimes going for cost effectiveness. It can offer cost effective solutions that are still one-on-one for the places where that makes more sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious if, if you can tell us a little bit more about kind of how we, how we move in these directions, right? Like, are there particular policy things that you think need to happen or in order to support this kind of pure driven care more, or how, how is the good life movement kind of thinking about that? Yeah. So as far as our plan strategically, yeah, because we're so new, we uh, ha- have a lot to build. And so we're, we're sure. taking a very long-term approach here. Um, and so our main goal for the next two years is primarily organizing around the uh, 2024 election cycle. I think one of the most important things uh, to do right now is really just build the capacity um, to, to get the volume of the public involved in, again, the politics of mental health, because we could go out there right now and, you know, I could get, you know, a thousand people and at least at the federal level, it wouldn't uh, move the needle that much. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's it's basically being patient. So my, like our strategic plan is like get lots of people and then go bring, you know, the change down upon government. Um, that makes sense. So sort of starting with the movement yeah. building and then moving into sort of policy once that momentum is there yeah. and once you have I mean, all we, the experts under the roof and stuff. So so within like the two-year timescale, like our main call to action is getting people to, um, you know, we're, we're going to come out with a scorecard, mental health field, and our main call to action is going to be getting uh, politicians within the 2024 election cycle to take a stance on it. Um, because really what that's doing is it's building the actual power that will get us the legislation passed. Because again, we could come out and say, hey, pass XYZ bill. And we're open to what we're calling like tentpole moments where if a special opportunity shows up in January 2024, like we'll go with what we got and go for it. But, um, you know, really, you know, we looked at the last midterm cycle and less than 
you know, I think the number was like less than three to 5% of candidates made mental health any part of their election platform, which is just Mm -hmm. ridiculous. And really until you can build enough power where you're actually getting people to make mental health part of their platform, AKA take a stance on the scorecard and like put it on the website, you just like, you're just going to be a convenience. Like they'll pass it when they sort of get to it. And so you have to just have that power to actually like get what you want. Otherwise you're going to get the scraps whenever, you know, whenever it happens. So that's our main approach. Um, And, you know, we have all of our policies defined on our website through the unified vision and our gross domestic well-being. Um, But yeah, goal one is like, Hey, let's get pissed off and make politicians, you know, acknowledge us. Love it. Where is that website? And folks are trying to find you. Uh, it's goodlifemovement.org. And for those people who are interested, our even shorter timescale goal is we're asking everyone to donate um, $1. Uh, we're trying to get 10,000 donors by May of 2023. Um, because you know, I mentioned this earlier, so much of the story around mental health has been like we've established it's important and we've gone out in our media and told our story. But we've never made the call to action. So this May, we're um, going to make a little augmentation to Mental Health Awareness Month, we're going to make it Mental Health uh, Political Awareness Month. So our goal is to come out in that month and say we have you know, 10,000 people who have effectively endorsed these ideas and this vision and this goal, um, collaborate and come out with a sort of a small coalition of people in the field. And um, hopefully that will be the beginning of changing the narrative in the country that mental health is not just uh, important, but it's something we uh, should fight for and can fight for through the good life movement. I love it. Well, hey, we've talked about how this is the underpinning of so many uh, issues, important issues in the country. So uh, it seems like an easy easy move to make to drop a dollar in the hat. <laughs> Definitely encourage everybody <laughs> to do it. Um, any other things that you feel like we should cover today before we uh, before we wrap? No, I mean, I, I mean, we covered most of it. I mean, obviously, if anyone has questions, they could email me um, or the organization. Uh, I'm Andrew at goodlifemovement.org. Perfect. Um, happy to answer questions. I mean, this was, you know, we, as I mentioned, I've been working on this for a long time, but um, I hope people feel encouraged because, yeah, like you said, this is the moment, this is the opportunity, and this is, to me, the most important thing we can do. This is how we, um, again, especially gross domestic well-being, if you can change that individual lever, um, your trickle over time is just a gradually more effective society and how it allocates resources towards well-being, which has second and third degree order effects on everything. So this is, to me, the linchpin to it all. <laughs> yes, it does seem. Well, we wish you the best. Uh, I hope for all of our sakes we <laughs> can raise some some uh, well-being. And thanks again for being on to share with us what you're up to. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for having me. It's been a, a pleasure, Gavin. Absolutely. All right. Take care.